Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com, or you can also find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. So today I am super excited because I have with me Daphne Walker Thought, who is a retired substance abuse counselor. Oh my gosh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Oh, emeritus? Emeritus. Oh, emeritus. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I haven't even brought you in. You're like, I'll help you, Angela. You can't figure it out. <laughs> So let me read some stuff about you and then we'll learn more. Okay. Oh, by the way, for those of you listening, this is the first time I've had somebody in person in the studio since the pandemic. So I'm just like giddy to have a person in front of me. <laughs> so before recently retiring, I devoted, or obviously Daphne devoted more than 20 years to helping awakened faith organizations to the anguish and despair of social injustice. 12 years ago, she spoke at the White House as a panelist on the role of faith organizations in addressing social service issues. Daphne, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Angela. Oh my goodness. So tell me a little more about your role and what you've done to to help with the anguish and despair of social injustice. Well, I went to school uh, to be a journalist. And okay. so when I when I graduated from college, I came back to St. Louis from Kirksville, Missouri. And I was a reporter for the St. Louis Argus and the St. Louis American uh, weekly newspapers. And it seemed like every story that I was doing, I was doing mostly feature stories. Every story had um, something to do with substance abuse. There was some kind of way there was substance abuse involved in every tragedy that I had to mm. report on, uh, every family I interviewed. There was some underlying issue of substance abuse. Mm. And so one day I was you know, sitting at my desk and I said, you know, somebody's got to do something about this substance abuse. It's just Somebody's got to fix this yes, problem. somebody's got to fix this. <laughs> and it was like, you know. It might as well be Daphne. Yes, yes. There was, <laughs> I, I felt like there was a knock on my head and said, okay, you do something about this. And so as I went about learning about substance abuse and talking to people, I found out that most of the people that had recovered said that they had help. They had help from other people. They had help from therapists. They had help from God or higher power or the universe. There mm -hmm. was some connection that they they said helped them to get well and to heal and recover. And so... Uh, right about that time, uh, I was doing some work with youth agencies and some other agencies because I didn't want to just write about mm -hmm. the substance abuse problem anymore. I you wanted, wanted to, to do get something. in there and yes, get dirty. <laughs> I needed to do something. And so I started working with youth agencies and uh, domestic violence shelters and other agencies to do something about it. And, you know, it just amazed me that it was that connection to help people get well. And so... Um, I was working at the Missouri Institute of Mental Health, mm -hmm. and that was around the time that uh, George uh, W. Bush came out with his faith initiative. Oh. And we, What was his faith initiative? Because most people, I mean, some people know about it, some uh -huh. people don't. Okay. What he was trying to do was to even the playing field for faith organizations so that they would be eligible to get federal grants to deal with social service issues. Because huh. before, you know, faith organizations, you know, did not routinely get federal dollars to deal with, um, you know, social justice issues or um, 
problems in the community. And so what he was trying to do was level the playing field so mm-hmm. that when faith organizations applied with everybody else to get grants to do social justice uh, services or address social issues, that they would have an equal chance along with other organizations, community-based and other agencies. How did you end up being a panelist? Well, I had been working with uh, the Missouri Institute of Mental Health and the Missouri Department of Mental Health. We were getting faith organizations more involved with helping people to recover and to help them build programs to help youth so that we could prevent some substance use among the youth. And so I had been doing that. And one day, the director of the Missouri uh Division of Alcohol and Drug Abuse came to me and he said, you need to build this faith-based initiative statewide across all of Missouri. And I was like, what? That was a tall order. (laughs) It was, because we had been doing it in St. Louis with the clergy and with rabbis, and it had been successful. And he said, now you need to expand this statewide. And so I went about my business of expanding it statewide to help faith organizations know what it was that they could do to help people recover and to do substance abuse prevention programs for young people. And so one day I was sitting at my desk and I got a call and they said, uh, this is the White House calling. We want you to come speak. And I was like, yeah, right. Because I thought there was somebody pulling my leg. And so I said, okay. What yeah. do you do when the White House calls you? You're just kind of like, oh, right. this I is know. just Jim. Right. I don't know, I, know. Jim is. I said, this is somebody playing a joke. And then they said, no. And they gave me their name. And they said, I'm calling from the White House. And we want you to come and speak about a, a faith organizations addressing uh, social issues. And I was like... Okay, and then they gave me more and more information, and then I realized they were for real. And they said, we want you to come to Washington. Are you available this particular date? And I said, sure. And Were they going to fly you? <laughs> they did. They flew me. They paid. Ooh, how exciting. <laughs> and I was part of a panel of uh, organizations across the country that were working with faith organizations to help them to address, you know, social problems. And so so that's how I got there. And amazing. it was amazing because I thought it was a joke. But it, <laughs> it was great because we got to talk to people. They brought in philanthropists from across the country. They brought in a lot of people. And we were able to talk to them about the importance of having faith organizations involved in addressing some of these social issues. All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. (laughs) Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD 
test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically, they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. Well, so let's dive into some social issues, shall we? Yes. (laughs) So part of the reason I asked you, Daphne, to come on is because, well, we've got some pretty intense social issues happening currently. And so just in case you don't remember all of the people listening, so first there was a pandemic and the whole world shut down. I've I've been calling it an apocalypse, affectionately apocalypse. (laughs) But then then some things came to light. um, And I'm... uh, There are so many of them that I can't always remember all the names, but it started... I mean, it didn't start. So like even... Okay. So just to give you a little precursor to even my own like me working through this process as a white woman, like I even find myself tripping up. I haven't been taught to have good conversations about racism and racial injustice. And and so I, when you hear me trip up, that's me like saying, Angela, just say it. It's okay. <laughs> just say words and get the information out. But like, that's even the process for me going yeah. through this. Like, wow, I've never been taught this. I've never been taught how to have good conversations. So um, in light of George Floyd, his horrible murder um and brianna taylor yes brianna taylor and more that these are only the two two of some of the recent ones but this has been happening for a very long time and it's affected it's affected black people and our communities and and there's a lot of divide so part of what i just wanted to do was bring people to this podcast to have this conversation um so with that being said, yeah. why don't you talk for a bit and I want to listen <laughs> okay. about what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about everything and that's going on? Well, you know, of course it's is is traumatic and you know, it uh the the pandemic first of all, the COVID-19 pandemic brought to light some of the racial disparities that mm-hmm you know, we have been dealing with, seems like forever. And a lot of the work I did at the Missouri Institute of Mental Health revolved around disparities in the black community. The HIV rate among black women at the time I was working there was super high. Mm -hmm. And there were so many racial disparities, um, substance abuse, uh, mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And um, so the pandemic brought that to light. And then with with the uh the 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 real visible you know deaths mm-hmm. that that happened right after and the protest you know it's like it 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 really it it was traumatic but it was like okay this has been going on for too long mm-hmm. this is our life this is what we live every day especially our black men and it's time for a change and so with the protest i actually was very hopeful 
because mm-hmm. I saw the broad array of people from all over the world yeah. that came together to say, this is not right and this needs to change. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt hope, you know, because in the past, it's been mostly African-Americans coming together, trying to make a change. But with this current um, with these current protests, I see just a wide range of people, young, old, white, black, Asian, everybody coming together saying this has to stop. It has to stop. And so I, I really have felt more hopeful than I have in a long time. I, you know, as a, a African-American mother, I have a 40 year old son and I have a 33 year old daughter. And as my husband and I were raising them, we encouraged them to grow up, leave St. Louis, go to college someplace else because of the, the racism in St. Louis, the systemic racism, the, the, the racism that was, was unspoken but that we felt every day. So we encouraged them, pick a college at some, in some place where you want to live afterwards because you, don't, you won't have the opportunities in St. Louis. And they did. They, they, they moved, they went to college, and they both have been very successful. And I just doubt that they would have had the success that they had had they stayed in St. Louis. I have a lot of questions for you. Okay. <laughs> so, first of all, I just want to give every one of my listeners a reminder that I, I, something you and I were talking about right before this podcast is I honestly think that most people are reasonable and want to hear these stories and want to get involved. And I'm hearing more and more from the people that I work with, from people on the street, like friends, family, clients, that they want to get involved, but they also want to understand. So I, I know that we see in the media a lot of representations of very extreme a very extreme viewpoints. And I think in many ways it polarizes us. And so part of what I wanted to do with this episode is to bring out the moderate, because I have a moderate listenership, mm-hmm. to be fair. I think as a therapist, you just attract those kinds of people, right? Yes. <laughs> and I, I have the kind of listeners who really do care about this and want to find ways to help. But also, I still think everybody needs to learn how to see it. So one of the questions I have is just, what are those, what are examples of those forms of racism that can't easily be seen, but that have impacted even you and your family every day or your clients, whoever you want to represent, because it's also your choice. <laughs> yes. And it's it's uh, mostly to me in St. Louis, it's been the systemic racism, mm-hmm. because as, as you said, there are, are people that get along day to day fine. You know, yeah. I've always worked in a diverse environment and have not really had any problems with individuals, but it's the systemic racism that is is it's it's not covert. It's not right there in your face. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in uh, youth agencies even and had white coworkers who were my friends. Mm-hmm. And there would sometimes be these meetings behind closed doors, and mm. the black staff were not invited to these meetings. Mm. And my friends would come out and say, Daphne, you know, this is what was said in this meeting. And, you know, it was just amazing to me because mm. I'm like, well, we're all here working together, but, you know, here are some 
things that are in place that are going to keep me from advancing. Mm. And then some of my white friends would even see that, okay, yeah, you're a little more qualified than I am. Why is it that you didn't even get the opportunity to apply for that job when it came open? Mm. And they started to see things. And there were people who would move from other parts of the country to St. Louis, white people. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would see them sometimes at parties and they would say, what is it about St. Louis? It was just something they couldn't put mm-hmm. their finger on. And I don't want to say it's just in St. Louis. Yeah, because it's in other yes, places too. But it it's is. very racially, there's a lot of racial divide, I think, in St. Louis too that, you know, you can— where I yeah. see it in small ways is in how yes. the question, where did you go to high school? Yes. Actually, it's a basic question. And it, I think it places people in some ways in racial um, lines. Does yes. that make sense? Yes, it, it does. It does because our, our, our schools, you know, have been segregated and, you know, it just people form opinions of you based on what high school you went to. Mm-hmm. And, it, okay, you went to Sumner or you went over there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, when, as I was a, a little kid growing up, the school that I went to initially was in walking distance from my house. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was, it was an all-black school. It was Laclede, a world-class school, and they still are a world-class, you know, elementary school. Mm-hmm. But then when I uh, was about, I guess, in the third or fourth grade, they bust me. Uh, further away to a school because they were trying to integrate the schools that were further out. And so, you know, I was just happy in my neighborhood walking to school every day. And then, you know, we got bussed out. And the schools that we were bussed to were not as good as Laclede. You know, Laclede has a fine reputation. And then that's where I first encountered, you know, people calling me the N-word. And I was like, well, you know, what what's going on? Because growing up, we didn't even know about race. You know, we just knew our school's down the street. We walked to school every day. And I remember at Laclede, I did have white teachers at Laclede. And I was coloring one day. And uh, I think I was in kindergarten, and I was coloring the people orange. And one of my white teachers said, why are you coloring people that color? And I said, well, that's the, the color of people. And she said, look at your hand. Your, your skin is brown. And I was like, oh. Then I looked at her hand, and, and that was the first time that I noticed that there was a difference, you know, in, in different colors of people. It just never had occurred to me as a child. That's so interesting. <laughs> uh, huh. What did you learn about your parents? Well, like, what did you learn from your parents about racism as you were growing up? When we were when we were little, um, I, my parents protected us. They, I said they were such great parents because they protected us. We didn't even know what was going on in the world. They just let us be children, and they did not introduce us to all of these things. And my parents would take us on a vacation every year, a road trip Mm -hmm. as far away as California. Uh, We went to Canada for the World's Fair one year Mm -hmm. driving, and they never took us down south. And I didn't realize that until I was like a teenager. And I said, well, how come... How come we've never been to Mississippi where grandmother grew up? And how come we've never been to Alabama and down south? And my mother said, I didn't want to expose you all to what, you know, the racism. And uh, she said, you know, I just didn't want to take you down there. And I was a teenager uh, in church before I went down south. We went to Alabama, our church 
uh, youth group went to a conference in Alabama, and that was the first time I had been down south. I was a teenager, and I had been all over the country and outside <laughs> of the country, but never down south. But my mother said there were still segregated drinking fountains and things that she just didn't want us to see. And my grandmother grew up in Columbus, Mississippi, and she said she left there when she was six years old. And she mm. said uh, she never wanted to return. She oh, wow. never wanted to reach. She said, there is nothing in Mississippi that I ever want to see. And I would say, Grandma, but I want to see where you grew up. And she said, no. She's like, there's nothing there's good about nothing it. There's <laughs> nothing good. And no, I, and she never did go back to Mississippi. Never. Wow. And so do you think then, like, what benefit do you think there was then being kind of protected from it versus what costs? You know, I always I always like yeah. to look at the pros and cons, yes, right? Yes, there was. <laughs> it was um, it was a shock to me, you know, when I uh, first got bused to some of the, the, the white uh, elementary schools. And when somebody called me the N-word, that was like a shock to me. And mm-hmm. I was like... Huh? <laughs> had you ever heard you know, that word before? Or? I had heard it, but I had never been called it. Okay. And, you know, and it was like, you know, why, why is she calling me that? And why don't, you know, some of them want to play with me? And, uh, and then uh, my, my parents would, would tell us, um, you know, you can be anything that you want to be. You know, they implanted that in us. You can be anything that you want to be. And I could, I could remember... Actually, in college, I was sitting in a room at at, and the, at my college in Kirksville, Missouri, and it was a board room, and I was waiting on somebody to come in for a meeting. And then as I looked around the wall, they had pictures of every president mm-hmm. all around the room. And I thought, my mother told me I could be anything I wanted to be, but I cannot be the president of the United States because these are all white men. Wow. And it was like huh. an awakening, <laughs> like... <laughs> I can't be anything can't that be I that. want to be, you know. And you can be something. Yes, you can be, be some things. And then <laughs> another thing that they embedded in us is like you're going to have to work 10 times harder than a white person to get, you know, a chance. And so that was embedded. So I, you know, I was a, a, a doing machine. You know, I always had to excel. I always had to do good, do better to prove myself. And that just became exhausting, I was just going to ask, what do you think? Because I've heard that. Like, so there's this sense of, so I've had a lot of different clients, black clients who've mm-hmm. talked to me about this, specifically males. And one of the things that I hear consistently is this feeling of perfectionism that you have to literally be the perfect person yes. and you have to strive high and you have to never show any like weakness, any. And so I guess I'm wondering what you think the impact that is on on people. Oh, it's just it's it's so stressful. It is so yeah. stressful because none of us are perfect. Yeah. And it and I can remember, you know, being in uh, home economics and my grandmother was a master seamstress. So I would bring my little home economics sewing thing, uh, sewing projects home and she would tear it up. Start over. That's not good enough. Start over. And so that to, to this day, I do not like sewing. <laughs> I just don't. I won't touch. Like I was doing something pretty wanna, in your room. Right. I don't want to hem anything. I don't want to touch it because it was, and she was, she was such a, a good seamstress. And, you know, that that pressure of having to be perfect, 
you know, it, it weighs on you. And then I, I noticed it in my, my daughter when she was a, a little mm-hmm. child. And I was like, where did she get this from? Because I'm not trying to, you know, make her perfect. But then one of my friends said, said, but she's looking at you. You may not say the things that, you know, your mother and grandmother said to you, but you strive to be perfect. And so she's looking at you. And you're <laughs> her model of yes, success. She's and she picking sees that it. Up. She's like, okay, this is what needs to happen. Yes, I need to be perfect. But it's probably not just you. It's also yes. culture. It's also society. It's about mm-hmm. how how black people can be punished in this world for mm-hmm. making one small mistake or yes. no mistake, not yes. even a mistake. Yes, yes. Because it, it just... It is. And there were strict rules. You know, you have to be in the house by this time. And Mm -hmm. those rules were put in place to protect us. And we didn't know it as children, but those were rules to protect us so that we wouldn't be out in the streets and, you know, nothing would happen to us. And, you know, and as you know, my son was growing up, you know, of course, my husband had to have the talk with him about if the police pull you over, here's what you do. You keep your hands in sight, yeah. you know, don't reach for anything. And, uh, you know, my son, when he was in high school, I, I had bought a purple convertible because I always wanted a convertible. So I bought a purple convertible, not an expensive car, a Chrysler. And so he would drive my car. I can't tell you how many times he was stopped by the police. And I said, well, you know, son, maybe when you drive, don't drive with the top down. And I was like, well, what good, what good is having a convertible if you can't drive with the top down? And But they would constantly stop him, mm. you know, and that was just, that was terrifying, you know, for, for, for me, for his father, for his little sister. Because they stopped him one time when his little sister was in the car and he had pulled around a corner to stop and she was just terrified. And she said, Aaron, don't pull around this corner. Stop. Out here out where everybody public, can, so see. can see, she was terrified. And when she got home, she was like, Aaron pulled around a dark corner. And I was trying to tell him, don't do that. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. So so if you're okay with it, I'd like to just take a moment to um, address white people who may be listening in um, for internal processes. Is that okay? Sure. So I'm for those of you listening in, as I'm listening, I'm still growing as a person, but I'm I'm being triggered in different times about things, these topics. And it's not to say I've never heard stories like this before, but when when we start listening, and so by the we, I am talking about white people who are finally starting to kind of listen and try to step on a journey towards how do I learn about this and grow? Because I want to I want to facilitate that growth. What happens internally is a bit of shock, fear. Like, has this really been around the whole time? How could I have not seen this? And then the thing that we need to do to grow in this area is to recognize that there is this thing called white fragility and white guilt. And at times, because of that, there is this sense that, well, it wasn't me. I didn't do that or I didn't do those things. So, uh, you know, like, and and what it can do is create this sense of like, I just want to avoid these topics or I don't want to go there. But if we really want to grow and like learn, sometimes we have to sit with that discomfort. We have to learn to kind of hear stories, really take them in, not, and so the weird thing is it's not taking it personally or seeing it as like some sort of attack on you. It's not, these are stories. But when I, when I personally sit and, and speak to all of my, all, everyone, essentially everyone who's connected to me in the black community, I'm still growing as a person and learning how to listen and interact and really still be present. 
And part of a way to work on that is to have compassion for yourself that you're not going to do it perfectly, that you're not going to know exactly how to do it. You may not have the right words. I literally, in the beginning of this show, was like, I'm going to say this wrong. <laughs> but like giving yourself a little permission to fumble, make mistakes, yeah. but then learn to really listen and hear. Because I think when we when we just shut ourselves off to these stories, then we can't really grow as a community. And to your point earlier, Daphne, this is a time in the movement where I'm I'm seeing that same change. I'm seeing that movement, that excitement, and that energy of people. And I really want to help people grow in their journey towards learning. But there there's some steps that white people have to take to really grow in that journey. And and it's I'm just wanting everybody to know it's not even easy for me sitting here. I'm trying to make sure that I do it. I'm taking a perfectionist attitude, essentially doing this. And I'm like, Angela, give yourself a fucking yeah, break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, um, I don't know if you have something to say on that, Daphne, or not, but I, I was curious what your thoughts were yes, kind of listening. I, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, and it, it is. It's these conversations are are difficult to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from from an African American's perspective, you know, sometimes in the, in the workplace, even when when, and I didn't routinely share anything about racism <laughs> in the workplace. Because it doesn't didn't. always go well, no, does it? <laughs> no, and I I just didn't. But you know, sometimes something would would bother me, and I would say something, and people would be shocked, like, "Oh, wow!" They're like, "Whoa!" Yes. Or they dismiss, right? right? And they right. just like, or "Oh, that's dismiss. not happening." Or maybe it's just in your head; it's yes. just happening to you. Yes, there. You know, uh, one time, some I was talking about my son and the fear I had of him being shot. And and they were like, well, all of our children are at risk of being shot, and that's just not anything special, you know. And so it was dismissive. It is. And that that hurts, you know, that hurts that, um, you know, I was hoping that, you know, people would, would listen and understand, but then I have to understand that people didn't grow up like that, you know. They don't—some don't even have an awareness of, of all of that that has happened— and that, and it's uh, and, and it's okay, you know. If people want to ask questions, don't be so harsh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> allow them grace because they have not. Sometimes it's the first time they've heard about this, and you know we have to allow grace, especially when people are really sincere and interested and want to know what I can do to help. So we we have to allow some grace. And but to yeah. add to you what you're saying, Daphne, though, I think it's still reasonable to understand why some people are a little tired oh, right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, so I agree with you. Giving people grace to kind of come along in their journey is a great is a great thing. And I, I love hearing you say that, but I also want to give so I don't want to say but and <laughs> <laughs> I also just want to give grace to people who have been trying to speak this message for so long and just are tired. Yes, there's a lot of, I hear a lot of just tiredness, just weariness. Yeah. And it does, it, it weighs you down. And, you know, I I have, yeah, I have been tired myself. You know, I retired from the workforce after 50 years and, you know, I had just resigned myself to, you know what, I'm getting out of this workforce because <laughs> the the systemic racism, you know, yeah. it wasn't my, my colleagues that I was working with every day, but it was the systemic racism that didn't allow me the opportunity to, to advance like my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't uh, the individual person necessarily. And so, you know, it was that weariness. And I'm like, okay, if, if my job office in early 
our retirement, I'm out. I'm tired. <laughs> I am tired. And I hear that just mm-hmm. this collective tiredness, you know, mm-hmm. from people that have been saying, well, I thought that, you know, we were making progress, but it's still the same thing. It's another black man has been killed. Mm-hmm. And it was just so brazen, you know, so brazen, yeah. the one with George Floyd, that it was like, my God. You it know. really was. And I think what people need to know, too, is that it's just when we caught on video. <laughs> like, that's that's what's bringing that tiredness out for people is that, all right, I, I'm grateful on the one hand that we, ha- we have not just one, but first of all, that we have video. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, everybody has a video on their phone now. Oh, yeah. But it's the tip of the iceberg. And so it I'm grateful it's there, and I, I'm horrified that it's there, too. So, like, understand there's, like, mixed, obviously, feelings around this. But at the same time, that tip, it just means we somebody caught it, caught in the right way, caught it exactly what was happening so that the world could see it and it could be publicized the way it needed to be so that people could see it. But it's only a tip of all of the ways and all of the injustices that have happened in this country to people of color, Um just across time. And what I keep hearing is like 400 years, actually, Angel. 400 years is what we're really facing. Yes. it's 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 been a long time. And it just, you know, it gets so, um, it, 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 it just weighs you down. When I worked in substance abuse, we used to go into the prisons mm-hmm. because the, some of the churches were formulating programs for the men when they got out of prison. If they had a substance abuse problem, they could come to the church and get in recovery groups. Mm-hmm. And as we would go into the prisons, it was just, you know, there were just, just black men, black men, black men. And I was like, you know, brown men, you know, Hispanic men, you know, are we the only ones in prison? And it was just so discouraging. And then when you look at just the systemic, it's the systemic. When when I would I would go out of town a lot working uh, with faith organizations and every city that I would go to in the airport, it was, you know, the black people had the jobs cleaning up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where are the people behind, black people behind the counters? And it was just mm-hmm. the same thing, city after city after city, which, you know, let me know this is systemic. This is not, you know, like individual Racism. This is systemic. It the is. system, you know. Just to your point, so I was talking uh, with my partner about IT jobs, okay? And it, it, just a brief conversation we had because uh, we've been having conversations about racism, systemic racism. And he, he had said to me very briefly, you know, I haven't had many resumes come aco- across my desk actually from African-American man, men or women, like pretty much period. And so... For somebody who doesn't know or understand systemic racism, they may think, well, do do African-Americans not really care about the IT community? But if you look at it from a systemic justice or a systemic um, inequality point of view, think of what schools they came from. Did they have access to IT resources? Did they teach STEM? Um, Did they have an encouragement towards going into that system? Did they have opportunities to make it? And even at the resume level, I've been looking, I've been like 
delving deep. <laughs> oh, yeah. But like even at the resume level, I, I was reading in this article that Harvard did that some people are whitening their resumes mm-hmm. in order to get, just to get to, get, in the door. get on the desk. That yes. like there was, I don't know if there was a service or, or what, but like they were, they were having people look at their resumes and even mm-hmm. the names, the name yes. on the resume mm-hmm. can make you more or less likely to be seen exactly. by an interview. Yes. Your address. Yeah. Or the school you went to, mm-hmm. all of that plays into it. And you get screened out before you can get in the door. And yeah. I had a, a, a white friend. We graduated from college at the same time. And we had both, we were both applying for communications jobs at different entities. And she would get interviews and I wouldn't. And she was like, how come you're not getting interviews? And, you know, of course I knew, but it was like a shock to her, like, but we have the same qualifications and everything, but you don't even get an interview. And so, you know, you I believe you see the percentage it. was three three times more likely if it, it's a yeah. white-sounding name versus yes. an African-American sounding yes. name. Yes, and then the address, you know, mm-hmm. and so so many things. And I remember uh, growing up, I used to think I wanted to be a dentist. And so when I was in high school, you know, I told my counselor, I want to be a dentist, but I don't like science or math. And then she just said, well, don't take it. And I didn't. And then when I got to college, trying to major in pre-dental, there was all of this genetics, physics, and all of the stuff that I just hated. And I would be in the lab. You know, I was going to my instructor saying, I'm struggling. And some of my classmates were saying, didn't you have this in high school? And I said, no. No, And they said, we had it in high school. And I said, well, they told me I didn't have to take it. And we didn't have, you know, we had chemistry, barely had physics, but we didn't have any of genetics and all of that other kind of stuff. And so, you know, because I was like, okay, I know, you know, I'm I'm pretty smart. So why am I struggling like this? And I can't get it. And then, you know, and it, it was just that, that, you know, you don't get the advising, you know, you don't have the connections, none of those kinds of things. But thank God that at the school, at the college, there was my advisor. He was a white guy. And he said, just just sit down, just think about what do you like to do? You don't like science. You don't like math. And I said, I like English. I like writing. And he said, did you think about journalism? And I thank God for him. And he said, why don't you go spend some time at the college newspaper? I went and I just loved it. I loved it. And I said, thank God for him. Well, good, because you ended up in a place where you were passionate. Yes, (laughs) yes. I think it's a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And he, he helped me. Some of the other instructors, they were like, well, just drop the class, you know, mm-hmm. just drop it. But he he sat down and talked to me and listened and advised me that mm-hmm. that got me on the right track. So I, I thank him <laughs> to this day for doing that. <laughs> well, I guess the only thing I'd want to add to that is just thinking about access. Like when I think of systemic oppression, um, I think of access. How easily is it for people to access these different resources? And it is harder yeah. It is harder for different communities to to access that resource. I was even mm-hmm. just, you know, it was so, you know, and I'm, I'm just give myself a little grace. I'm always yeah. worried about, am I going to say this right <laughs> oh, or wrong no, right now? But I'm going to do my best. <laughs> yes. It's but fine. so, like, I work with lots of different clients, and you know, I, I'm always surprised at the difference between clients who went to private school versus the ones who've gone to public school. Even that difference, yeah. for example, and the way they speak is. 
There, the money, the world is your oyster. The money's out there for taking. That is a yeah. very private school oh, yes. way of talking. And of course, there's majority white people in the private school. Yeah, but I don't. It's funny because I don't hear people even in public school speaking in that same way, that same verbiage, and it's just very. I don't know. Yeah. It's just interesting to see that there are real differences. There are there real are. differences in how people are educated, how they are guided, mm-hmm. how they're even guided towards or away from wealth. Exactly. Exactly. And I can remember, you know, my 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 ex-husband mm-hmm. talking about growing up, you know, in in school and you know, the people, you know, in the school told him you'll never amount to anything. He and he wasn't a bad kid. Mm-hmm. He was just a black male. And mm-hmm. they told him you won't amount to anything. And then they found out he could run track and draw, and then they wanted him to run track, in which he refused. I'm not running track for you, no. <laughs> and so that, you know, that does damage to children when they're told, you'll never amount to anything, or you can't do this. Uh, forget about that career. You know, you'll never measure up. And it just does damage. It does. You know. Well, so this is a question on your form, but how do we fix a broken system? That's well, a I question. think... <laughs> You know, listening, being able to listen and being able to talk with each other freely, you know, without being hesitant. We're going to be uncomfortable, but, you Mm -hmm. know, just working through that discomfort and really listening and, you know, hearing what how how has your experience been and me hearing how has your experience been? Because mm-hmm. I don't know how it was growing up, you know, as a white person. You know, mm-hmm. I have not had that experience. And so listening to each other, hearing our stories, there was a, a rabbi that I used to work with in our f- uh, faith initiative on substance abuse. And he was just so good at storytelling. He said, allow people to tell their story without interrupting. He mm-hmm. said, you tell your story, I tell my story. And he said, your story, parts of it is my story. And mm-hmm. we see that connection and we see how we relate and we see that we are all human beings. And you know, I found that to be true in the diverse work environments that I worked in when we were able to sit down and just talk you know, it just made such a difference, mm-hmm. such a difference when you can feel like you're being heard and, you know, maybe not fully understood, but you're being heard. Well, I think that trying counts, right? Yes, so it the does. Fact that people are trying yes, to listen to these it stories. Does. And, you it know, does. it does. It's a big deal. And it's important to hear that we're trying and we're getting closer to where we want to be. But to your point, it is important that people are are trying to put their stories out there. And I really do believe that most people are in that reasonable space where they actually care and they want to see change here. But to your point, I think the more that we're sharing these stories, the more we're actually going to be able to hear each other and actually connect yes. and make these changes. Yes. And, you know, I was, I was brought up and I still believe that there are there are more good people in the world than there are people that want to harm and and do bad. I sure hope there just are. <laughs> there are more, <laughs> and I just you know, and I I can hang on to that that there are more good people in the world than there are ones that want to harm and do bad. Okay. Well, so we're actually kind of towards the end of the podcast. It kind of went fast. So what are some final things for anyone listening that you just want them to know about, 
I mean, just I'll leave it there. Want them to know about, it. and you can talk about this for five minutes as long as you like. Well, I, 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 I just want people to know that you know anything is possible. I believe that anything is possible. I, I feel like there is hope. You know, with the protests, it's hard. You know, it's it's not comfortable, but sometimes protests are necessary to make change. And I just love to see the diversity of the people involved in the protest. And I see people trying, and I, I, I love that. People making small changes, but the small changes can lead to the bigger changes where we can, you know, dismantle some of this systemic racism, which is the real issue. It's that systemic racism that is a real issue. And it's going to take all of us to dismantle that and so I'm I'm just hopeful and encouraged by what's going on. Thank you, Daphne. I really appreciate it. And we have been listening to Daphne Walker Thought. I wanted to make sure I said it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, do you have any um Sometimes people might want to contact. I don't know if you have any links or contacts or if it's, nope, I just came to talk, but I'm retired. No, I don't want anybody. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm retired. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it hasn't gone like I thought. I thought this was going to be my year to travel and, you know, because I just retired last year. And oh, I said, man. oh, 2020 is going to be my year to travel. I haven't traveled anywhere. Yeah, because of the pandemic, cancel. you yes. can't go anywhere. <laughs> So I really am retired and I'm I'm not doing work. I do I do volunteer work in my church, but that's about the extent of it. <laughs> All right, so you cannot contact Daphne. <laughs> you can contact me and I am at www.therapistinsaintlouis.com. And of course, you've been listening to the About Sex Podcast, www.aboutsexpodcast.com. Thank you again, Daphne Walker Thoughts, for coming on. Thank and actually, you. I like your name because it's very thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Angela. This this has been great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And for all of you who are listening, stay kinky, St. Louis.